0: Today, If you're new here, my name is Fred, I'm one of the pastors. I have the privilege of getting to preach this morning, and so I'm excited to get into that. But real quick, a couple of announcements. Uh, One, um, last week I forgot to mention this, so I apologize, but our 2023 annual report is out. Uh, You'll see it in the fellowship area. It's on that little orange table right in the middle of the fellowship area there. We'd love for you to have that um, and look over all the great things that God did in 2023, as well as in there, there's some things that we're looking forward to in 2024. And so it's a great, great thing to, to check out, spend a few minutes looking through. So make sure you grab one of those before you leave today. We want you to be aware of all that is happening here. Also, this Friday night... Uh, today we're wrapping up the discipleship pathway series, and next Sunday we start in the book of Romans, and we'll be in the book of Romans the majority of 2024. And so, in preparation for that, we're going to gather together as a church on Friday night and read through the entire book of Romans together. And we're going to also have some prayer in there and some a little bit of worship. But the the main thing that we're doing on Friday evening is just reading through the book of Romans. It's a letter that Paul wrote to uh, the church in Rome, and when they got it, they would have done that very thing. Somebody would have stood up and read it, and uh, so that's what we're going to do. It takes about an hour to read through Romans, and so there's 16 chapters. We have 16 different people that are going to get up and read, and really looking forward to this opportunity just to kind of experience the book of Romans the way it was originally experienced, and so we invite you. That's Friday at 6.30 Saturday we have a membership class. Those of you who are interested in learning more about membership here at Redemption, um, Saturday is the next membership class. We only do that about twice a year, and so if you're interested in that, please do your best to be here on Saturday. Well, today we're going to we're going to conclude the discipleship pathway series, talking about the one thing that everybody hopes that the preacher talks about when they come to church: money. <laughs> and so, um, we don't talk about money a lot. If this is your first time here at Redemption, um, it is, it is uh, well, I don't wanna say it's a coincidence. God knew that this is what we'd be talking about today. But you might have come here today thinking, boy, I hope the church doesn't talk about money. Church is always talking about money or whatever preconceived ideas. Well, today is the money talk. And so, uh, we're gonna do it. And actually, the title of my sermon is why we should talk about money. And I think, to a fault of my own, we don't talk about money a lot here at Redemption, but it's an important part of our discipleship and our growth and spiritual maturity. But it is a unique topic, and so I think it deserves unique attention in the form of a sermon today. And in other words, if I were to ask you, if I were to ask you, as you think about the things that are associated with spiritual growth, reading your Bible, praying, going to church, stuff. If I were to ask you about any of those other topics, if I were to say, hey, how are you been doing reading your Bible? If you're doing well reading your Bible and you're regularly in the Word, you might say, I've been doing pretty well, you know, I always could do better, but been been doing okay. And and that would probably be, be it. If you weren't doing well and you haven't been reading your Bible, you would probably feel a little bit of shame, a little bit of conviction. You say, you nah, know, I really need to read more and you would probably be thankful that it was brought up. Like, I needed that. I needed that conviction. I needed, I needed the motivation to do that. And if I were to say the same thing about praying, how you doing praying? Well, you know, I, I probably should pray more, and you'd, you'd probably be thankful to, that somebody pointed. But if I said, how you doing with your giving? For whatever reason, giving triggers a different nerve, at least in some people, that, that causes offense It causes us to to take that more personally than we do other areas of our spiritual development. And so I want to address that today. I want to hopefully help us get past whatever that is that causes us to sort of bristle when we talk about money and understand the nature and the goodness of money according to the scriptures. So if you have, a, have one of the handouts that we uh, passed out on the way in, you turn over to the back, you see there's a place where you can fill in some blanks, take some notes, follow along. Today I want to I give three truths about money that we desperately need to know and embrace as Christians. And I do want to emphasize, I'm speaking today as though I'm speaking to Christians. And you may be here today and say, I'm not a Christian. That's perfectly fine. Just understand that this message is directed towards Christians. Doesn't mean it won't be helpful to you. Doesn't mean there's not truth here for you as well. But I'm addressing this topic to Christians. So I want to give three truths we need to embrace about money. And then I want to give three thoughts on how we handle giving personally in our lives. The first truth money is not the root of all evil. There is a misconception that the Bible teaches that money is the root of all evil. And that misconception leads people to think, we shouldn't, as Christians, we shouldn't talk about money, we shouldn't think about money. Sometimes we say, I'm not even sure if I should have money. (laughs) What is, how as Christians, how as Christians do we respond to the issue of money? Well, the first thing you need to know is that that is not true. The Bible does not say that, nor does the Bible teach that. The Bible does not say money is the root of all evil what the bible does say is found in 1st Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 where paul says for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil notice the distinction one says money is always a dirty subject and that all the evils in the world come from the issue of money, the other says, no, 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 that's not true, but the love of money, what we would commonly call greed, the desire to have more money than is necessary for your own personal needs, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, Paul goes on to say, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. There's A big difference between viewing money as a dirty topic and yet recognizing that there are spiritual traps to be found in the love of money. Paul says that it has caused some to wander away from the faith. The love of money can actually cause you, greed can actually cause you to wander away from the faith. We see that play out all the time. We see people who become obsessed with or consumed by gaining more wealth and have no time for other spiritual things, and they wander from the faith. We see people get offended or upset over way Some Christians have handled the topic of money, and it pushes them away from the faith. In all of these things, though, we see that the love of money causes us to pierce ourselves with many griefs. To love money, to pursue money in a greedily fashion is to pierce yourself with many griefs. The context of this that, that Paul is, 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 when he's addressing this with Timothy in chapter 6, if we look at the couple of verses immediately before verse 10, it, Paul says this, but godliness with contentment, so those two things, godliness and contentment together, that is great gain. He goes on to say, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. There, this is, and this, listen, this is not a, this is not a argument against, Capitalism or entrepreneurship or a business mindset. God gives some people the ability to produce wealth, and that is a good thing. But understanding it in the context of, more importantly, is godliness with contentment. And that if money becomes an idol, money becomes something that we desire above God, then we fall into a harmful trap. In fact, Paul says, people have been plunged into ruin and destruction. You know, one of the surest ways to ruin somebody's life is to give them unearned wealth. Look at, the, I mean, Google uh, the, some of the stories of what have hap- has happened to the majority of people who have won these big lotteries. It's not pretty. It's not a good thing. And so, but that's not to say there are many examples of people in the Bible who had great wealth. Abraham was wealthy. David was wealthy. There, there, it's not to say that wealth is incompatible with godliness. It is to say that the greedy desire to become rich is full of snares and traps. And so it's not as though there is nothing to be concerned about in the pursuit of money, but we must understand money is a good thing. It's not the root of all evil. It is a good thing that God uses to accomplish his purposes. The absence of money can lead to many of the same traps. The absence of money can can lead to just as much greed as the accumulation of money. The absence of money can lead to just as many heart idols. I'm always amazed at how the prosperity gospel, the the distortion of the gospel message that God desires for everybody to be healthy and wealthy and have great success in life. I'm always perplexed that that prosperity gospel takes such root among poor people predominantly. There's, there's, there's something about living in poverty that draws people to this distortion of the gospel, and that's because How we view money is ultimately a heart issue. It's not money that can be bad. It is our response to an attitude towards money. So point number one, money is the root of all evil. Number two, however, uh, money, I said that wrong, didn't I? Did I say money is the root of all evil? Yeah. Uh, That's how culturally ingrained (laughs) that can become. Money is not the root of all evil. Number two, money fuels mission. Money is actually a resource that God uses to accomplish His will. I would say, properly handled, money actually builds relationships and helps accomplish ministry. Now, the opposite is true, improperly handled, Money can destroy relationships and it can tear down ministry. But properly handled, money actually builds relationships and helps accomplish ministry. We see evidence of this all throughout the New Testament. Money is one of the most talked about topics in Scripture. And the New Testament is no exception. When we come to the New Testament, in fact, the occasion... The reason for Paul writing many of these letters that have become the New Testament books has to do with money. Oftentimes he's writing to thank a church for their gift. Or he's writing to request that a church take up an offering for a special need. And the result of that is many of the, the books of the New Testament. Probably chief among those in terms of its occasion for Paul's writing is the book of Philippians. Paul wrote the letter to the Philippian church in response to how they have supported him financially. And it's a prime example of how money has actually not only fueled mission, but has helped build a strong relationship between Paul and the church in Philippi. He says in chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, hopefully that verse stood out to you, because... It's one of the more well-known Christian verses in just popular culture, Philippians 4, 13. We see football players put it on their blackout makeup. We see athletes get it tattooed on their bodies and they they take just verse 13, it says I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me to mean I can score this touchdown, I can win this game, I can accomplish these physical feats because Christ strengthens me and yet in context, Paul is talking about his ability to endure poverty and to not be ensnared by the trappings of abundance. He's been through both. He's been without and he's had an abundance and he has learned to be content in either circumstance because he is able to do all things through Christ who gives him strength. He goes on to say in verse 14, still you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. You know, Paul, Paul was a missionary in the first century. He would travel to different parts of the Roman Empire and he would present the gospel and he would establish churches and uh, he would continue to correspond with those churches as he traveled. He would write these letters and he, he was constantly building up the church and as he did that, often he was what we would call today bivocational. He, he would support himself. He was, we, um, he was a tent maker, and so he would use that skill set to earn money to supply for his needs at times. But at other times, there, there was a door open to him where he was just consumed by ministry opportunities, and he depended upon the support of the churches that he had planted. And the church in Philippi was one of his key supporters They were aware of his ministry needs, and they sent offerings to help him focus on the ministry that God had called him to. And because of that, they had a strong bond. They were bonded together in the ministry of the gospel. And the same thing is true today. We see that if you've ever given personally to not just your church but to a ministry somewhere else, you know that there's... There's a unique bond that you have in, in partnering with them financially. And that was the relationship between Paul and the Philippian church. He says in verse, four, uh, verse 15, he says, And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. There were times when this was his only financial supporter. You think that didn't mean something to Paul? You think the Philippian church didn't hold a special place in his heart because at times when other churches couldn't be bothered to help him with his needs, the Philippian church was always one he could count on. So he says in verse 16, "For even Thessalonica, for even in Thessalonica you sent gifts for my needs several times." But he understands this in perspective of the eternal picture. Because he says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. More important to Paul than the money, though the money was necessary, more important to him is that he sees the spiritual growth in the Philippian church. More important than the money is to see the church that he planted grow into spiritual maturity as they embrace this view of using money to fuel mission. He says in verse 18, but I have received everything in full and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided. A fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. He's talking about money. <laughs> he says what you gave is, is a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, and it is pleasing to God. He is directly tying their handling of financial resources to their spiritual worship of God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever, amen. Okay. If money's not a dirty topic or a dirty subject, it is something we should think about. It is something we should give consideration to. And if money fuels mission, if money enables and causes things to happen that are good in the the kingdom of God, then that ought to shape the perspective that we have on our own personal finances, How we steward, this is a biblical word that we often use, stewardship is is to manage. How we manage the money that God entrusts, entrusts to us is a spiritual subject. It has to do with our spiritual growth. And that leads me to truth number three. Money is a tool for spiritual growth. It is a tool for spiritual growth. Quite the opposite of being the root of all evil. Money has the ability to help us grow spiritually. What I don't mean by that is that you can buy spiritual maturity. (laughs) What I do mean by that is that it's another opportunity. It's another way in which we can learn to serve God. There's several places we could look to in scripture. I think one of the most helpful passages in scripture on this subject is Matthew 6 verses 19 to 21. These come from the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 6 verse 19, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also. It's it's not that Jesus wants his followers to be poor, although he does at times allow his people to experience poverty. There are billions of Christians who have existed and lived their whole lives in poverty over the last 2,000 years. There are many still today, in fact, um, we're going sending a team back to Malawi in a few weeks and uh, to go and to continue the work that we're doing there to establish the school of ministry. And um, man, when we were over there pre- teaching and preaching last year, one of the things that, that came up that kind of surprised me was, you know, here in America, we, we, we have to talk about a, a, a work-home life balance. You know, you don't want to spend so much time Working that you neglect the needs of your family and and we, have, we live in such abundance that we have the luxury to to really accomplish both you generally speaking you can you can balance your home and, and work life well we talked about this a little bit over there because we were doing a marriage seminar and we talked about the the need to to kind of balance those two things and one of the brothers asked a question at the end about how he should handle the need to go and live and work somewhere else, because their economy is such that he cannot get a supporting job, a sufficient job where his family lives. And he also can't move his family to where he can get a job. And so he spends the majority of the time away from his family, and it's Quite literally, the only way they can survive and exist. And and I said, wow, you're speaking from a perspective that I don't even really understand. Fortunately, the pastor that hosted us stepped in and helped kind of address some of those cultural issues. But that's a whole different world. We live in this world where we have the ability to do both. You can meet the emotional and physical needs of your family as well as go to work and earn a sufficient living, but that's not always the case. And sometimes God, I mean poverty is sometimes a part of God's plan for Christians' lives. There's a false gospel that teaches Christians should never be poor. Christians were often Throughout church history, Christians are often good, Jesus loving, Bible believing, faith filled Christians, often live in poverty. However, that's just kind of a side point. The point that that Matthew 6 is making is not that, that in order to be poor, you need to, or in order to be a Christian, you need to be poor, or not that being poor is more spiritually pure than having an abundance. The, the teaching here in Matthew six is that God wants you to have treasure. He just wants you to have a better treasure than, than what this earth can offer. And so the teaching is, don't store up yourselves treasures on earth, and a lot of people stop there. See, the Bible says don't store up wealth. That's not the point of the passage. The passage says, don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth because treasure on earth is susceptible to destruction. Moth and rust can destroy. Now, most of us don't store up the kind of treasure that is susceptible to moth and rust. But these are examples of things being diminished in value because of natural elements and natural forces. Uh, Furthermore, thieves can break in and steal. You know we don't we don't store up things that rust. Well, sometimes we do. Um, we like we like cars. That's probably a good example of where our treasures tend to rust. But we tend to invest in things like stocks and bonds and cryptocurrency. And yeah, moss aren't going to touch those, and rust aren't going to destroy them. But you better believe they can all lose their value very quickly, can't they? In fact. Entire governments can be wiped out. There are many historical examples of where governments just completely crumbled, which made the currency of that government completely worthless. You could, you could be the richest person in your country, and if, if your country collapses, you are now living in poverty. So Jesus is saying there's always, there's, there's always an inherent risk in storing up treasure on earth. Furthermore, even if your treasures that you've stored up for you on earth aren't destroyed, you are eternally separated from them at death. You can take none of this with you. And so Jesus desires that his people have better treasure. Don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. And where thieves don't break in and steal. What Jesus is teaching is that money can actually be converted into eternal rewards. Money can be used to store up for ourselves treasures that will last forever. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a cool thing to to realize that we can use our money to store up treasures in heaven? and rewards in heaven. I love that concept. There's so much in life that we have to invest our treasure in that won't last. Vehicles are perhaps a prime example of this because nothing loses value faster than a vehicle. And I mean, They say, what is it, 20% or something that it it comes down in value the moment you drive it off the lot. And then every day after that and every time you drive it after that, it continues to go down in value. And, you know, one of my favorite vehicles is the old Ford Broncos. Not the new Ford Broncos. Those are okay. And I hope nobody here feels offended by that. Maybe you drove one into the parking lot today. Those are okay. They're nice vehicles. But those old Ford Broncos, aren't they cool? They're so great, and I'm always scanning Facebook marketplace trying to find a decent deal on one. And you know what I find that happened to Four Broncos in Western Pennsylvania? They all rusted apart. <laughs> they all rotted to death. You cannot possibly, in this climate, preserve an old Ford Bronco. They just are destroyed by rust. And that's a great reminder. Vehicles are not a great long-term investment strategy. They are, however, a necessary investment because vehicles give you the ability to do important things that you otherwise wouldn't do. And so there's always gonna, you're always going to have to pay a light bill. You're always going to have to buy groceries. You're always going to have to do things that, from a financial perspective, don't, aren't, aren't great investments. Like food is not a great financial investment. It, it immediately becomes worthless <laughs> other than we need food to continue to live. And so for that reason, it makes sense. But as a financial investment, you're throwing money out the window or you're actually putting it somewhere else that I probably shouldn't talk about here on a Sunday morning. But it's going away quickly. Jesus says that there is a way in which you can invest your resources that they will produce Eternal treasure. One of the cool things about that is he says in Jesus says in verse 21, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Money, money actually steers the heart. It tells our affections where to go. Make a substantial financial investment into something anything on the earth but since we've talked about vehicles let's stick with that go out and buy yourself an eighty thousand dollar jeep where's your heart going to be for the next well for the foreseeable future in that jeep unless you're so filthy rich make a make a financial investment that for you hurts a little bit okay some people can buy an eighty thousand dollar jeep drive it off a cliff we not think twice about it but For most of us, that's a huge financial investment. And every month that we make that payment, we're gonna think about it. Every time we get in that vehicle, we're gonna think about it. Your heart is there. And so, you know, buy an $80,000 vehicle and then have one of your kids run into it on their scooter. (laughs) And then you'll find out where your heart is real fast. Because on one hand, you have a human life which has unspeakable value. But then on the other hand, you have this vehicle that you've invested so much hard-earned money in and you'll find out where your treasure lies (laughs) real fast. Money actually steers our heart and tells us what to care about. How we invest our money, how we invest our money determines what we will be passionate about. Invest in the things of God and that's what you're going to care about. Invest in the things of the world and that's what you're going to care about. Probably the simplest example I can think of, I know I've shared this before and okay if you make fun of me for this, but in the early 2000s, I bought stock in Krispy Kreme donut, <laughs> like, like actual stock, like stock, I, I was always invested in Krispy Kreme, I was always invested in the sense that I would drool as those fresh hot donuts would go across that little miracle conveyor belt where this waterfall of icing would coat them and they would come out so warm they would just melt in your mouth, but I made the step to actually buy stock in the company not a lot of stuff. It was like a 100 bucks or something. It was like one of of my first times like playing around with investing and stuff. Well, guess what happened? I started to care disproportionately about what was happening with the company, Krispy Kreme Donuts. And let me just tell you, it didn't go well. (laughs) It didn't turn out, they didn't have a good business model. Great donuts, bad business model. But that's an example of what happens to us. Wherever our treasure is, Jesus is right, that's where your heart will be also. If you put your treasure into the kingdom of God, you're gonna say, this this is what this is what you're gonna think about when you fall asleep at night. If you invest through praying and invest through serving, that's where your heart is gonna be. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So three truths that we need to embrace as Christians about money: it's not the root of all evil. Money fuels mission. Money is actually a tool for spiritual growth, both in our own lives and in the church at large. So now let me just add three reflections on giving. Therefore, you'll see on the handout, giving is an area to grow in. Giving, just like all other spiritual disciplines, giving, just like all other parts of our walk with Christ, is an area that we are to grow in. We are to grow in generosity. We are to grow in financial management and stewardship of the resources that God has given us. John Wesley said, the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. Far too often, I think that's true. Money is the last area of our lives that we give over to Christ's lordship. And it shouldn't be that way because it's, it's, it's one of the, it's, of all the spiritual disciplines, it is no less consequential and is no less rewarding. It's perhaps more rewarding than some of the other spiritual disciplines. When we consider the fact that we have the ability to convert money into eternal rewards, that's an incredible benefit. And so we have to grow in the area of giving. Uh, the next, thing, next reflection under giving is that giving should be proportionate. These next, one, next couple points get into how should I give. Well, the good news is the Bible says that giving should be proportionate. This means that the one who gives more money is not necessarily the one who is most pleasing to God. And for most of us, that's good news, because we're never going to be the one who gives the most money. We're never going to be the ones to write million-dollar checks or $10 million checks. I had to, some of you know, I'm a Georgia uh, Bulldogs football fan, and that's uh, because my mom's from Georgia. I always grew up having Georgia Bulldogs gear, and by God's grace, they're finally good. There was a lot of years where they weren't good. And I had the privilege to go to my first Georgia Bulldog football game this year. And at halftime, they honored these people who had made, I think it was donations of a million dollars or more. And there was like several of them. (laughs) And I was like, they... They did what? <laughs> Somebody gave like $10 million. I was like, who gives $10 million to anything, let alone to just a school? Like if I had $10 million, I could think of a lot of things that I was going to do. That with Listen, some people just, they can write checks like that every year. And that's a spiritual gift. There's a, there's, and they are accountable for how they steward those resources. For most of us, we're never going to be the biggest giver. But that's okay because giving is to be proportionate. Proportionate to how God has prospered us and blessed us. In other words, proportionate to how much money he gives us to manage. Second Corinthians chapter eight, another one of these letters that Paul is writing to a church that he has a financial relationship with. And he takes a pretty significant chunk of 2 Corinthians. In fact, chap, most of chapters eight and nine have to do with the subject of money and their giving. He says in chapter 8, verse 11, he says, Now also finish the task. He's talking about their plan to support. um, I think, if I remember correctly, this was actually an offering they were taking up to assist the Jews living in poverty in Jerusalem who had become Christians. Now also finish the task so that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion According to what you have. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. In other words, it's your heart and your desire to give, not the number of digits on your check. It's, it's how much you desire to give that is being measured here, not just how much you're actually giving. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what the person has, not according to what he does not have. You are not responsible for giving money that God has not given to you. He says in verse 13, It is not that there should be relief for others and hardship for you, but it is a question of equality. In other words, you got Christians living in poverty in Jerusalem, and there was a lot of persecution in the first century, especially after after uh, Jesus's earthly ministry, and then there's a lot of conflict between the Jews and and the Roman Empire, and so there was a lot of people suffering in Jerusalem. And here in Corinth, you got Christians who are living in abundance. They're not experiencing that level of poverty. And so Paul is calling on them to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters, but he's making sure to point out, I'm not asking you to give money you don't have. Just out of your abundance Take what God has given you and let's meet the needs of some of these Christians. So it should be proportionate. For that reason, many Christians consider the principle of tithe to still be appropriate for the Christian church. There is a debate over whether or not the tithe should is something that should carry over from the Old Testament into the New Testament or if it is one of those things that went away with Jesus fulfilling the law. And I think the tithe or something like it should be the general practice of Christians. What is the tithe? The tithe implies two things. One, it implies first fruits. Tithes were meant to be given as a first fruit. You were to give to God primarily and before you gave to anyone else. Before you paid your bills, before you did whatever you were gonna do, saved up money for vacation or whatever, you were to give first fruits first to God to honor him and to worship him as having that place of priority in your life. The other part of a tithe is that it is a percentage. It means 10th. It is a percentage, meaning that it is proportionate to what you have. If you have $10, you're not asked to give 9.50, but if you have a hundred dollars, you're not asked to 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 give ninety nine either. It's proportionate. It is a percentage then of what you have. And so a lot of Christian, some Christians say, well, the New Testament doesn't teach tithing. Jesus actually affirmed the tithe, but um, it's not a hill I die on. It's Kim and I have always practiced a tithe. We find that to be reasonable and easy to live by, and um, You know, we've been blessed because of that. God has always taken care of our needs as a result. And so I encourage that, but again, not a hill I die on and something for you to study the scriptures and consider for yourself. But the principle that you can't deny is that giving is to be proportionate. We are to give according to how God has blessed us. Next, Actually, this is my final point. I combined two because the, the passage combines two, and I didn't want to split the passage. Giving should not only be proportionate, giving should be intentional and cheerful. Just as we saw in previous passages that it is the heart, that it is our attitude that God cares about just as much as our obedience scriptures are clear that our giving should be intentional, it should be planned, it should be thought out. We should consider our means and give accordingly and that it should be cheerful. 2 Corinthians 9, this is the same letter I just read from in 2 Corinthians 8. Like I said, this occupies the majority of these two chapters. Paul goes on to say in chapter nine, verse six, the point is this, the, the person who sows sparingly Will also reap sparingly. The person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Did you catch that? Each person should do as he has decided in his heart. So this needs to be a matter of prayer and consideration. You need to decide how you are going to respond to God through giving. And it is not to be reluctantly or out of compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. So giving our giving should be proportionate. It should be intentional and it should be cheerful. If we will commit to growing in this area of our lives, there are perhaps more promises attached to how we steward the resources that God gives us. This this verse conclude this passage concludes with, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Paul is pleading with the Corinthians to to obey God in these things cuz he knows God will provide for their needs. He knows that God is faithful. He does he he does not neglect or ignore when when we are faithful to obey him in this area, he is faithful to meet our needs. I've heard countless examples of people who said, "I don't know how I'm ever going to get to a tithe level giving. I don't know how I'm ever gonna be able to give a significant portion of my, we spend everything we have. And then they test God in that and they, tr- they say, well, let's just try it. Somebody just told me this morning, when my husband and I came to Christ, we didn't know how we could ever give 10% of our income. And so we gave 1% and we said, let's see how we do after we give 1%. And things went well, so they started giving 2%. And they and then they eventually outgrew tithing and were able to give, which is always the goal, above and beyond the, the 10% that they learned to generously and cheerfully give. That has been the normal Christian experience. That when we obey God, he sees to it that we have all that we need. Um, when it comes to giving here at Redemption... Uh, we do take up an offering as you notice if it's not your first service we do take up an offering and for many people that is that is the most helpful way for them to do their giving for others um, we give differently Kim and I give online and we've just we we have found it most helpful to us to To do that, and a lot of things going through our heads Sunday morning. We don't carry a checkbook. We don't carry cash. Uh, It was just helpful to us to say we're just going to decide what we want to what we want to do in this area, and then we're just going to automate it. And the danger of that is that it becomes you know this is not a bill you are paying. This is an act of worship. And so I do occasionally just stop and try to remind myself, yeah. This is, this is part of my devotion to Jesus. This is part of my life of worship. And I think that's important to do. But we think all those options and means are appropriate. If you want to give, do your giving here on Sunday mornings through the offering. If you want to give online, we'll continue to make that as easy and as uh, feasible as, as possible. However you decide to do it. I encourage you to be generous to be cheerful, to be intentional in your giving. Would you pray with me? Father, in this topic that does have a tendency to hit a nerve for some of us anyhow, God, I, I pray that we would learn to love and obey you. I pray that we would grow in generosity and that we would grow as Supporters of the ministry that you are doing through your church around the world, God, would you would you lead and direct each of our hearts personally, so that we might become more spiritually mature in this area, uh, but also have a greater eternal impact? As so we see the opportunity to take worldly wealth and to turn it into. Gospel effectiveness through giving to your kingdom. God, I pray that we would see the fruit of that. I pray that we'd set our hearts on heaven, that we would seek eternal treasure and not the treasure of this world. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue to worship, and as part of that, we will receive the offering. And um, Listen, this wasn't a sermon to try to get a bigger offering. My fear is that, that that one of the hesitations I think pastors have in talking about this is we, we think, you think, we work on commission. <laughs> we think that you think if the offering goes up, we get more money. and That's, that's not how it works. Um, however, giving is an act of worship. And so we want to do it so. Historically, when I talk about money, there is no change or a reduction in the offering. (laughs) And so the idea today is not to get a higher offering. The idea is to increase worship. The idea is to increase uh, a devotion, a heart of devotion to the Lord. So as we give today, let's do so cheerfully and in a spirit of worship. Would you stand with me as we sing a couple more songs together?